So here we are in the island nation of Australia, surrounded by ocean, but we too often forget that we are situated in a dynamic, diverse and busy region. And what can we learn from this region? How do our regional partners approach government communication? And that region I'm talking about, of course, is the Pacific. And today on the podcast, we have an expert on the Pacific to shed some light on these all-important questions. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, my guest is Geordie Kilby, who is a communications consultant working across the Pacific region. I've known Geordie for a long time. He began his career back at the ABC, and he has been right at the forefront of engaging, educating, and entertaining diverse audiences for many many years. Uh, He started uh, as a presenter and then as a senior producer for Triple J and then worked for ABC International in Papua New Guinea as a broadcast media and archives advisor before returning to the ABC as content director and at Radio National as a broadcaster. Most recently, Geordie was the communications team leader at the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat in Fiji, where he was in charge of creating and managing communications that enabled policy development throughout the region. He joins me from Suva today. Geordie Kilby, welcome to GovComs. Hi, David. Nice to be with you. Mate, um, you had a a, a fantastic career uh, in Australia across a whole range of, of media, but particularly in radio, but you worked locally, you worked nationally. Um, what were the skills that you sort of picked up along the way that sort of were the foundations of your success? That's a good question. I, I guess the, I often, when, I, when people ask me about my career, I say it's been about uh, communications, obviously, but also about community. And what I've been particularly interested in is how you build and contribute to communities. So it was a big feature in local radio, um, it was a big part of the work that I did in Papua New Guinea, and it's certainly been a huge part of, of, of working in the Pacific is, is how you engage and work with and learn from communities. So I guess probably the thing that I've, I've, I've learned, the skill that I've picked up, um, the most important one that I've picked up is listening. It's the listening skill. Um, that's something that I think, you know, I spent a lot of time listening to music as a kid, and I thought I knew what listening was all about, but really... Uh, um, active listening and being really involved in the listening process and trying to take away not just what you hear in your ears, but um, with communications, particularly in the Pacific, the, the context here is that it's a, lot, it's a lot more contextual. So there's a lot more, um, there are a lot of other things that happen, silences, for example, um, and also body language when you're communicating with people in person. So I've tried to really work on that aspect of, um, of, 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 of my, um, I guess, my suite of skills as a communicator. Um, and the other thing that I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about and playing around with is storytelling, uh, trying to work out engaging ways of, of, 
of telling stories. Um, sometimes that means pulling stories apart and putting them back together in a, in a different order just to see if by reordering things you can make them more interesting or working out the best ways of pulling people in at the beginning, how you sort of create um, cadences, crescendos, how you let people down, how you finish things. All of those things are things that I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about. And oral cultures in the Pacific, they're great storytellers. So I've learned a lot from listening to leaders um, in various parts of the, of the region uh, over the over the last 15 or 20 odd years that I've been working here. I've learned a lot just from listening to the way that they tell stories and the way they communicate with uh, with people. Well, that's an incredibly rich answer, and there's, <laughs> there's so much in that. So let's dive in. Um, let's just go back to that point around listening, because I think this is um, you know, often undersold or underappreciated when you are in the communication business, that it really is you know, about understanding and empathy and really you know, knowing and feeling uh, exactly what people are telling you. How have you become a better listener? And, and what's your advice to people um, to improve their listening skills? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, I think, uh, I guess the, the easiest way to become a better listener is to spend more time doing it. Uh, a little mantra that I, I often repeat to myself uh, when I'm involved in, in meetings and, and when I've been involved in a, a variety of projects around about the places, while I'm here, am I trying to prove myself by talking more about what I know and by showing what I've learned and what I'm good at, or am I trying to improve my understanding? So uh, it's about improving rather than proving. Uh, so I, that's something I, when I find myself sort of wanting to jump in and, and, and participate in things by speaking out, I sort of repeat that to myself and I try to take a bit more time to sit back and just even allowing for silence is a very powerful thing and it's something that happens a lot um, communicating in, in different contexts in the Pacific. Um, silence is not, not the big uh, no-no that it is. Certainly on radio, you know, silence was, was death uh, on, on local radio. When I, when I started out there, everyone would freak out if you had more than a second or so and, you know, things automatically kick in to protect you if things are silent for too long. Um, but those kinds, those kinds of pauses are, are very important and um, there are a number of ways, depending on what the conversation is, that you can interpret those uh, when, when you have them here. So uh, that's, that's one thing that I've, I've kind of learned and one thing I've tried to really train myself to be a bit better at is just to sit back and spend a bit more time not feeling like I need to make any, any particular contribution, but just making sure that I'm, I'm understanding. So a big part of that also is, of course, asking questions just to, to clarify on things. Um, and I guess the longer I've been around, the more I've learned there are some questions that are worth asking and other questions where if they haven't told you the first time around, you're probably not going to find out at this particular point in time. So um, I guess those are a couple of, of small small but important things that, uh, or insights, I guess, that I've, that I've picked up over the years. How did you get used to dealing with silence when you went to the Pacific? <laughs> um, how did I get used to it? Well, I, mean, I, I got used to it by making a lot of mistakes, by talking way too much. I mean, I'm a talkative person. That's probably one of the reasons I landed in radio in the first place. I, I do, I enjoy talking and I enjoy yarning with people and I enjoy hearing about other people's experiences. Um, I also enjoy asking questions. So I, I guess how I sort of overcame it was by learning to ask more questions rather than make more statements. So more often than not now, when I, I, I try to ask questions rather than, 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 than offer 
my own knowledge or my own insight just so that I'm constantly learning. And I've found that that's a, a way to get more people talking more often, I suppose. Now, the Pacific is you know, critically important strategically, culturally um, for um, not just Australia really but for the world in, in many ways. What are those differences, those cultural differences that you alluded to in your first uh, answer and what can we learn in terms of, uh, of those cultural differences so we can, can make a better contribution to um, you know, the health of uh, our Pacific Island neighbours? Mm. Uh, look, I mean, there are, there are many, 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 many uh, cultural differences um, in the same way that there are, you know, a lot of cultural similarities. Um, and I think one of the things that's often missed is just how many similarities there are and how much shared experience uh, Australia and Pacific Island countries have. Um, and, I, and I'm speaking, I mean, I'm, I'm in all of this, I'm speaking about Pacific, we're talking about the Pacific as a, a generic sort of um, area. But of course, within that area, it's incredibly diverse from the countries of the North Pacific, your Federated States of Micronesia and Palau and the Marshall Islands, um, down to, to, to you know, across to Papua New Guinea and as far uh, east as, um, as, as French Polynesia, the, the, the people and the cultures within those areas are, are, are really diverse anyway. But there is a lot that, that are held in common. Um, I guess one of the interesting things when it comes to, uh, to communications is the, uh, the, individualistic sort of tendencies that we have in Australia far more uh, than the collectivist sort of approach to, to life and to community that is, is widely held across the Pacific. Um, and, you know, aspects of that, um, uh, one of the things that sort of, one of the first, one of the first big realizations I had about differences was when I, when I landed in Papua New Guinea in the, in the mid two thousands and seeing the way that, um, that they call them big men in the highlands. So uh, village leaders or community leaders, um, those people, they, they, they are not elected village or they are elected village chief. They're not born into, into chief, chief, chiefdom like others are in elsewhere in the Pacific, but they, they get to where they are a lot of the time through their abilities as a communicator, as a, as a speaker. So, uh, I used to uh, hear a lot of them talking on the radio and I would talk, was working with the, the guys at the National Broadcasting Corporation in, in Port Moresby. And at the ABC, the, the advice that I was always given there, and I, you know, it was good advice, um, and we, I still give it to some people around podcasting and other things these days, is that when you're talking, you, you, you speak, you communicate as though you're speaking to one person. It's a very intimate medium radio. Um, and podcasting as well. Um, so you, it, it, it's often a good idea, and many uh, many people imagine just speaking to one one person. Whereas in Papua New Guinea, whenever I heard people communicate, they were always speaking to the masses. It was always to not just one person, or even ten, but to hundreds, um, sometimes thousands of people. Whether they were broadcasting on the radio, or whether they were on the television, or whether they were on the on the um, you know, in the in the middle of a, a village somewhere, talking to the people, and I, I sort of talked to them about this idea of you know just talking to one person, and that idea was completely um, at odds with what they were with what they were used to. Uh, and so I guess I've I've learned that there are different ways of of um, of approaching communications, and that sometimes in some places, and certainly in the Pacific, um, there are different ways of, of of considering your audience. So obviously, as communicators, a key part of that is who is your audience? What are they looking for? 
um, what's the best way to reach them, what's the best way to communicate with them. And so I've had to tailor some of the things that I've done, I guess, over time to um, to try and try and work in a way in which uh, people here expect to hear things or expect to hear about things. So in terms of, and we'll come back to that in, in a minute, but I'm, I'm intrigued by these big men and, and their speeches. What sort of themes would they speak about when they're on the television or, or on the radio to get the attention uh, of the local people? Well, it would be a range of stuff, and it wouldn't be too different to the kinds of things you hear politicians uh, talking about uh, in Australia or, or, or anywhere else in the world. These are, are, are local leaders, so they'd be talking about you know the issues that were that were important to people. I guess my and I I, I wasn't living in a in a village anywhere while I lived in in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, so I, I, the only times I got to see those things were when I, uh, at one point, was lucky enough to do the rounds when uh, the elections were taking place in Papua New Guinea in 2009, and we visited a few, um, uh, you know, sites, villages where where elections were taking place, and so we got to hear um, local um, prospective politicians, important people, big men of the community, um, you know, talking about the issues that they thought would get them elected. So I mean, it was a broad broad range of stuff from the kinds of the ways in which the local markets operated or could operate better, uh, the ways in which they were going to bring more money into the community. Um, uh, yeah, I, it could it could be almost anything, but their ability to 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 craft a, a bit of a, a tale around it. It wouldn't be unusual to hear people um, also use a story to illustrate a point, and that's a pretty common feature of a lot of good orators I've seen is that they they rely more heavily on the anecdote than the um, than cutting straight to the chase, and so you might hear a, a good story, uh, and then it'll, there'll be a you know a little uh, sting or tag at the end that will make you realise, ah, oh, okay, I see I see where this is going, or where this, why I'm hearing this now. So, in terms then of that understanding, just to return to that point that you were saying about tailoring your approach to the audience and, and to their needs, in the Pacific, how how do you go about building an understanding of what different audiences are looking for? <laughs> well, it's really hard. Uh, trial and error is what I've had to rely on a lot of the time. Uh, I think. One of the things that is is a, a consistently raised feature in many of the contexts that I've been working in in the last five years or so is that data is very hard to get in the Pacific, um, and it's just because there's not enough uh, not enough effort to going on to try and collect it all, and it's very difficult to collect really good data because of the, the geographic uh, diversity of of, of the region. Um, also, it costs a lot of money to get data, and there aren't a lot of organisations around that are willing to invest big money, particularly in, in in getting together information about media and communication. So, the ABC uh, International, uh, so far as I know, they did the last sort of Pacific-wide uh, study of the media landscape, and that must have been seven or eight, maybe years ago. Um, so, and I think, and things have changed exponentially since then. Um, social media really wasn't a feature at all on the landscape then, and it is a big feature of the, of the of the media landscape in the Pacific region now. And social media, one of the great things about about kind of using that, and I've been it's been very much at the centre of a lot of the work I did at the Forum Secretariat, for example, was about developing social media channels. Was that 
of course, social media is a great enabler of two-way communication. Radio is very much about broadcasting. Talkback radio is great. But of course, you've got to have a phone and you've got to have phone reception, which is not always available to everybody. Increasingly, it is, but hasn't always been. And of course, it costs, costs money. Um, so social media has been a great way of, of facilitating more two-way conversations. And so that has allowed for some of the work I was doing at the Forum Secretariat, that has allowed for a little bit more of a, a two-way process whereby you can learn you know, what, what kinds of messages are people responding to, what kinds of issues are they particularly interested in, um, and not just interested in, but also um, engaged in. Uh, getting information out is, is difficult. So some of the issues that I was working with at the Forum Secretariat were um, climate change was a big one, uh, fisheries was another one, um, these are big global sort of issues or big regional issues and the, the level of knowledge about what the region was trying to achieve down at the, at the community sort of level um, varied widely. Um, so it was always putting things out, particularly on places like Facebook and, and Twitter, it was always interesting to see the range of people who were looking at and responding to, to, to the posts that we, that we put out. So in terms of that, um, if you could... Describe perhaps for us, you know, what is the sophistication of the of the infrastructure and and the media ecosystem in the Pacific? And again, I take the point that the Pacific is you know made up of a number of many smaller parts. But can you sort of offer a, a bit of a view as to what that sort of ecosystem looks like? And what are the most effective channels that you can use in that ecosystem to reach uh, citizens? Sure, it's. I mean, it's. It's a. It's, it is. It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating ecosystem. Uh, one executive that I spoke with once uh, said to me, "If you can really nail whatever messaging you've got, if you can nail it through social media, uh, a mix of social media and radio, then that's your best chance of reaching the biggest number of people." And I'm inclined to agree with that. Radio, uh, whilst it's receiving increasingly less um, interest and funding, is still the way in many Pacific countries to reach the, the widest uh, stretch of population. Um, so if, you're, if your intent is to get a message out, you know, a public health message, for example, something that's you know, fairly timely, um, obviously with, with in the year of COVID, 19. If you're looking to get out public health messages, social media and radio, two excellent ways of of of, of doing that. Television, less of a um, less of a staple here. It's often only um, or often more available in it's, it is more available in the urban places than it is in rural places. Uh, so if you're looking at at hitting a, and again these are gross generalisations, but if you're looking at sort of hitting a uh, 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 the higher educated, um, the, uh, the 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 employed um, sort of public servants or private sector kind of audience, then television might be a, a useful medium for you to use. Uh, and then we move on to things like um, uh, uh, Facebook, which is ubiquitous across the Pacific. Um, the penetration levels are, are pretty high, very high in Fiji, for example. Uh, not quite as high in some countries where the uh, the internet is still very expensive, and the a example I would use there is um, Solomon Islands, where quite a lot of time and effort's been 
is still going into to um, to bringing the cost of uh, of internet access down there, but it's still very expensive, and 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 Facebook as a result is 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 less popular. And in fact, in the last uh, few weeks, we've seen a cabinet decision to uh, potentially ban Facebook uh, in in Solomon Islands, which is something that's happened in one other Pacific country that I can think of in recent history. Um, for several years, Facebook was banned in Nauru. Um, but that ban was lifted, uh, I think, in early 2018, not long before we had the Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting in Nauru. Uh, so uh, Facebook, and there are other Pacific countries that have kind of talked about doing this at one point or another, but they're the only two countries that have done it. Um, and and why is it? Is, is, is it because of disinformation, misinformation that, that they've decided to ban it? So uh, I, I'm not 100% of the... Um, of the uh, official uh, lines that were given um, in Nauru, I know that there was a sense that it, it was contributing to, to to disturbances within the community. And I think you have to get again, you have to think about the size of the audience. It's a small island; it's only thirty odd square kilometres. Uh, and so, the kinds of things that were being posted there, yeah, disinformation, you know, the usual sort of <laughs> things that often get posted, in, uh, you know, in the community. Um, that ruffle someone's feathers. You post something about someone and it upsets somebody else, and it was just causing it was causing trouble. Uh, and so the government felt that it was best to 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 shut it down for a while. And again, it's not hard to get the word around in Nauru, being a small place. Uh, word of mouth is almost as effective, uh, probably just as effective um, as as any other form of communication uh, in a place that size. Um, but I know that in in the case of Solomon Islands, I think the government there is concerned about. Um, disinformation, uh, and we saw um, only last year or the year before, or in the last couple of years, Samoa has had issues with regards to disinformation, and they had a lot of problem with anti-vaccination uh, campaigners uh, in the wake of, of some measles um, uh, shots that, that went wrong, and a couple of children died, and that resulted in a hesitance to, to do further immunizations, which led to a, a, a measles outbreak there. Uh, late last year, which then ran into the COVID um, uh, pandemic of, of this year. So Samoa's been closed off for the last 12 months or so because they were shut down fairly early due to the measles. But that was a big disinformation campaign. A lot of that was run through uh, social media, social media, people coming from outside Samoa, um, but looking to affect what was happening within the country. So disinformation is definitely a, um, an issue. And it's, I mean, it's an issue for everyone. Uh, who uses social media, but um, but yes, it's it's definitely a, a reason for 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 governments to be a little bit hesitant uh, about it sometimes. So that being the case, um, I'm intrigued how then you know through through the Pacific, and again, very hard to to give us a one size fits all answer. But how was the the health messages around COVID managed uh, in in the Pacific? Look, I, I, my experience. I guess I, I was here. I was I was in Fiji for the for 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 the early months um, in uh, February and, and and March, and so I, I saw and I heard on the radio and I saw on the television. I mean, it was there was a lot of coverage um, about COVID. The example of um, Fiji and and the issue of of the measles. I should add, uh, last at the end of last year the measles sort of epidemic hit Samoa, Fiji was also affected, Tonga was also affected. And so there was already a heightened sort of, um, heightened sort of sense of, 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 of health issues in, in those countries. And I think what that helped to do was actually 
it helped to begin the government thinking about how are we going to get out a lot of messaging uh, about this. So certainly social media was a big part of that and there were definitely Facebook campaigns. The, um, the health minister uh, here in, uh, in Fiji is a very, um, a very outgoing character and he has a, a Twitter following with um, you know, quite a, a, reasonably, a reasonable size Twitter following for a, for a politician uh, in, in the Pacific Island countries. Uh, he was using that and giving regular uh, updates via his Twitter feed. Um, there were things obviously appearing in all of the um, all of the traditional sort of news media outlets. Uh, I think that they did a, a very good job here of, of of getting the message out. I think in other places though it's been a bit more uh, difficult. Um, you know, I think of places like Papua New Guinea, and just anecdotally, people friends that I've spoken to in the Highlands, for example, uh, the kinds of things that I was hearing about on a daily basis in Fiji and certainly I was hearing about uh, in Canberra when I was when I was back in Australia as well was very different to the kinds of things that they weren't, you know, they weren't hearing very much at all um, in places like the Eastern Highlands, uh, as I say, where, I, where I've got friends and, you know, we just ask how each other are, are going and they'd say, oh, we you know, really haven't heard very much about COVID at all. So it's... A notoriously difficult place to get get a lot of messaging out um, across the highlands of Papua New Guinea, but um, but yeah, it's it's very different in different different countries. But I think some of well, all have managed to do a pretty good job in terms of keeping COVID out um, of the Pacific uh, countries. You know, Fiji's had thirty odd cases, but it's been more than two hundred days since they had any community transmission. Samoa's only had one or two cases in the last week or so, and they've been picked up at the border. Likewise, in uh, Solomon Islands. Uh, but other Pacific countries have managed to to, to remain COVID three throughout this this year, which is something that not many other regions of the world can uh, can say. So, a part of that's been about you know effective uh, messaging, um, making sure that people who are travelling in and out of the countries, in particular, are doing the right thing with regards to you know, social distancing and washing hands and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Tourism obviously is a massive industry in in the Pacific. What's, what sort of impacts have there been on the economy? And again, to, to the question of communication, what sort of stories are the government telling the people about the next stage, which is obviously the economic fallout? Mm. Look, it's a good question. And I don't, I don't know that... I haven't seen a lot of government communication coming out yet pointing to where things are going to go. I think, I think a lot of work still being done to, to map out exactly... What is going to happen uh, for for folks who are who are employed in the tourism uh, industry? You know, Fiji depends in large part on on tourism. Um, many other Pacific countries, tourism is a very big part of their economy, and there are certainly a lot of people around who don't have work at the moment who who did have work um, this time last year. Uh, I think a lot of the skills that they that those people carry are. are uh, uh, transplantable or could be, you know, worked into a into another uh, industry if need be. But I, it, there's nothing that I've seen uh, as yet by way of, 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 of a real plan for for how to how to work with the um, the problem of of, of unemployment, which is definitely a big byproduct of this pandemic. Mm, for sure. And from an Australian point of view, and again, this is a, a communication podcast, how, how is Australia received in the Pacific? How are, how are we viewed and, and how could we perhaps improve the way that we engage with the Pacific? 
Australia has a, a very um, high profile in the Pacific. Uh, it's been a, a, a long-term um, part of, of Pacific thinking and of the history of the recent history of, of, of the Pacific region. I think um, through obviously the, the aid program that it has had for a long time and through the government the government uh, relationships that have, that have been uh, well established over a, a long period of time, there's a lot of really good stuff that Australia's involved in. And I think um, you know during this year um, with, with, with COVID doing what it's done, uh, Australia's been a big part of, 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 of a broader regional um, operation to um, to establish this Pacific humanitarian pathway, which has resulted in uh, all sorts of um, uh, goods and services being able to be moved around the region to to help where it's been needed. Um, so I think there's a lot of really there's a lot of really there's a lot of goodwill. Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of trust between Australia and Pacific uh, countries. Um, there's been there are issues that that, that arise from time to time. Um, some of the more recent big ones that often get talked about, and I guess we'll begin to hear more about this again um, in the next year or two or over the coming years. But is the the, the stances around climate change, where uh, Pacific Pacific countries have been very progressive in terms of what they um, hope the world will do to, to to mitigate the effects of climate change, and some have seen Australia's um, stance as being not as um, not as uh, swift or as progressive as as they would like. But at the same time, uh, Australia spends a lot of time and effort um, really talking and listening to Pacific countries about what their needs are and what the people uh, on the ground need um, by way of uh, of help responding to. Uh, you know the effects of climate change, which are definitely uh, impacting communities right across the the region. You know today as we speak. Um, so I think Australia does a, a pretty good job. The the, the, um, the 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 diplomatic missions and so on are very involved in in doing a lot of that. Don't hear quite so much from um, from other sectors, but I haven't really been engaged in some of those. I'm sure there's quite a lot of business to business discussion as well. Um, uh, in terms of, of, of private sector um, communication, but um, on the government side, I guess that those are some of the things that I've seen. Okay, now listen, just as a, a and I will let you go, but I'm 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 interested to to know just on your reflections and perhaps to go back to the first answer that you you spoke about this notion of oral cultures and. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that you then, you know, went on to say that, you know, radio um, and, and social media, which enable two-way conversation um, to, to connect with people. Uh, but what, what can we learn? What could Australia, Australian and Australian government communicators perhaps learn from uh, some of the lessons that you've picked up there in, in the Pacific that would perhaps make us a little bit better in what we do, even in in the the markets that we that we work in here, uh, in 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 Australia. Um, I, I mean, I uh, I do think of, I think of, I do think I think a big thing is is storytelling. I, I really I, I I love a good I love a well told story, and I, I I just see more people speaking here who seem to have a natural flair for it. And I can only assume it's because that's just kind of the environment that they exist in that they've grown up in. Uh, another factor, which I guess is worth um, reflecting on or introducing, is that is that the uh, is religion is a very big part of of most people's lives um, across the Pacific, and the use of parables and um, fables and things, those kinds of stories to get messages across, is, is a big part of 
of what uh, what 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 people hear in, in church too. So you kind of mix together those things and you get some very 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 good storytellers. Um, one of the things I've loved about the advent of, of podcasting over the last um, ten years or so is just hearing so many people kind of explode, um, telling stories about all kinds of things. And I, I, I love diving into new um, new new offerings from from people just to hear how they go about the crafting of a story. And a lot of it, I think, is still still maturing. There are some who are who are excellent storytellers, and by that I mean just the way they the way they piece a story together. Um, where where they start, where they choose to end, how they choose to to mix the details up. Um, I still hear just a lot of very linear kind of storytelling, and that's not always the best way to to tell a story. So I think that's been that's that's one thing that I I um uh, I think uh, if there was more storytelling coming from the Pacific into Australia, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that that people could learn. Uh, unfortunately, just the platforms aren't quite there at the moment for for enough um, Pacific voices to be heard in places like Australia. Australia, we've had the arrangement for years where, you know, the ABC for a while there had Australia TV and we've had Radio Australia and we broadcast things out, but we don't always get as much coming back. And I think more Pacific voices in the, in the media in Australia would be a, a wonderful thing just to hear um, some of those skills um, to the fore. Uh, it'd be really, really cool. I just wanted, we, a couple of years ago, we, we, we set up the first, um, the first TEDx in, in, in Fiji and we had half a dozen speakers or so telling stories of their own place and it was just it was fantastic to hear them um, hear the way they put them together and the way they put them out and we did that partly to create a platform for more Pacific voices to contribute to the global discussions on on a wide range of things hmm. but if we were to hear, hear that voice what sort of stories would they tell us <laughs> oh boy well I that's a tough one to answer. I mean, I think that there are, there are <laughs> everybody has a million stories in them, don't they? Um, uh, I, uh, in the spaces in which I've been working, a lot of stories have been about, uh, you know, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time working and thinking about climate change. So I, I'd return to that because it's something that I hear a lot of people talking about and you kind of, you see it um, uh, and you should hear it when you, when you go around from, from, from community to community, it is something that people are very much aware of. And there's been a lot of time and effort um, by governments spent trying to um, work with communities to, I guess, to adapt if, if, if need be due, due to, to the various changes that are taking place across the, across the region. So it's very much on, in, on people's minds. So I think hearing some of those stories would be a very powerful um, thing for, for others elsewhere in the world to hear. And, you know, some of the big international meetings that I've um, been to over the last five or six years with the Forum Secretariat, you know, some of the most powerful presentations were poets, um, were storytellers that were brought along by by countries. A woman named uh, Kathy Jetnil Kijna, who's the, the daughter of the a former president of the Marshall Islands, some incredibly powerful um, speaking and, and, and poetry that she's delivered at the United Nations uh, a couple of times. Those are the kinds of things that, that I would point people to if they're looking for, for good examples of the kinds of storytelling that, um, that they might hear from the Pacific. Mm. And I, I, I think the, a couple of other things I've taken from you is the, is the power of silence. And I imagine in many of those presentations, those poetry readings, that the silence would be overwhelming in some cases, the way that they use that to great effect. Absolutely, definitely. Um, I, that 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 contextualised sort of 
communication that, that, that takes place a lot here is is as much about you know what's said as what's not said and gestures and all that kind of stuff are, are a big part of it as well and I also the other point you or one of the other points you raised there around this notion of patience of being prepared to sit and 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 to wait and to listen and to listen carefully until uh, the truth reveals itself and, and and to be and to be ready to wait and, and to be ready to be patient I'm sure it's been a a wonderful journey for you, Geordie, um, as you've matured uh, and had these, this great opportunity to, uh, um, you know, to, to get deeper, I suppose, into that skill and to understand how um, you really do need to understand the audience to, to be an effective communicator. It's definitely been a, a very interesting journey. When I started off in local radio, it wasn't quite where I imagined I would be uh be 20, 20 odd years down the track, but I, I wouldn't change a, a minute of it. And when I think about uh, working again in Australia, perhaps in the media or somewhere else, um, or bringing some of these skills back to Australia at some point, I, I kind of, I think that um, I have a very, a very different sort of um, uh, perspective on communications to, 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 to what I, what I, what I left Australia with. <laughs> I can just imagine you having to rewire some of the automatic systems to, uh, you know, no, no, the pauses are okay. We've got to stop these machines cutting. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, Jordy, thank you so much um, for spending some time with us today and, and sharing, you know, the wisdom um, of that time because I think there's so much to it. No. And I love that point really around storytelling. And I think in government communication, that's really, you know, we need to break free from the talking points and the media releases and the sort of blandish speeches to sort of get in behind, you know, because again, you know, 99.9% of what government does is, you know, is good. And um, if it's wrapped, you know, in the perspective of people um, communicated effectively through the right channel at the right time in the right cadence with the right num- amounts of silences, mm. uh, we should be able to to, to to tell a better story. And Because I, I think, the, uh, you know, communication is only going to become fundamentally more important for government as we go through this next period of time where government will play a role in our lives that we have not, not seen before. Mm. Um, so that explanation and that commitment to explain and to connect and to inform is going to be important to you know to strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens. So um, I'm really grateful that you've given us uh, uh, some of your most valuable asset, your time and your your attention today to share uh, with the audience. So really grateful for that, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. It's been really nice to talk to you. I often walk to work listening to uh, to the GovComs podcast, so it's uh, <laughs> it's been really nice talking to you and being on the other end for one. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you, Geordie Kilby, all the way from Suva there today. And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again. Uh, Great conversation there with a very, very talented broadcaster. And I can't wait to see, you know, what difference he or Geordie can make when he brings back that skill, brings back that knowledge and brings back that attitude into Australia to try to perhaps mature um, the way that we go about things here because we can always learn, can't we? We can always learn from these ancient cultures, as he said there before, these oral cultures um, where they've communicated, you know, successfully for centuries and centuries. So we've got to be awake to these opportunities so that we can get better uh, in order to connect and explain. Anyway, thanks, audience, for coming back. Thanks to Geordie Kilby uh, once again for his time today. We'll be back at the same time next week with another episode of GovComs. But for the moment, it's bye for now. 
You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.